Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt Eye Connections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. You are listening to the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami generally and usually joined by Danny Moses. Danny is on vacation. Well-deserved vacation, well by deserved. the way. But of course, Dan Nathan is here. And today for this podcast, we are joined by Mike Wilson, Chief Investment Officer and Chief U.S. Equity Strategy at Morgan Stanley. Not only that, we asked for questions. You gave us questions. We're going to address some of those. So we got a lot to talk about. Michael, welcome to the On The Podcast. Great to see you guys. Welcome back. Happy Holiday Welcome Week. Welcome back to the <laughs> Just, you know, Mi- Michael's, Michael's team, they've given him the go-ahead to do a quarterly with us. What like, does that mean? Like a quarterly pod, like like, like every quarter. Oh, so every he quarter. was here the first week of January. Now it's the first else. week of April, game. right? Like, it's a simple... So in, both of you indulge me for just oh, a second. Of course, as, as we do. So listen. So I'm a big fan of Nicolas Cage. He was formerly Nicolas Coppola. Now, the reason you know that, Dan Nathan, is because in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he was credited with a role as Nicholas Coppola. He is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. But he was in a series of movies, if you recall, National Treasure, with the great Diane Kruger, who is a beautiful woman. I mean, absolutely stunning. And now you're saying to yourself, folks, where is Guy going with this? Well, one of the things I learned in U.S. history is the history of the Resolute Desk, which finds itself in the White House. And of course, that was a gift to Rutherford B. Hayes by, I think, Queen Victoria back in the day. And of course, that desk subsequently became famous in the movies, Resolute Desk. And I got to thinking, well, I love Nick Coppola, clearly Diane Kruger. But think about how resolute Mike Wilson has been with his calls and how prescient, another great word, by the way, you have been. So, Michael, it is a joy again to welcome you back. And let's talk about that resolute call that you made. That tactical bull call you made a few months ago was spot on. You actually, to the day, nailed it. It went up the S&P exactly where you thought it would, subsequently fell. Everything is lining up to all the things you've been saying for not months, but literally the last 18 to 24 months. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the call is playing out, and it's not finished. You know, being bearish for any period of time is exhausting, but when you've been bearish for literally 18 months, I mean, it becomes almost torturous. And Tr- Try 18 years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, most of the client base, institutional client base, is not bullish on the fundamentals, okay? And where we are now is we're caught in this sort of technical setup where they want to believe that the worst is over. Okay, fine. And we're hanging around this 4,000, 4,100 level. Seems like we've been there forever, dancing around it, different leadership at different times. The piece of the bear market that's not finished yet is the growth implications of all of the tightening and some of the payback that still has to be thrown through the numbers in terms of margins and profitability. So that part is not priced in any way, shape, or form, particularly at 18 times earnings, and that has to play through. We've talked a lot about this on the pod over the last few months. It just seemed like, yes, we had the October lows in the S&P 500. That is the tactical call that you made calling for a move. I think it was like 4,100, 4,150 or so got there. And then we gave a bit of that back afterwards, but it was the NASDAQ that was actually retesting its lows in January of this year, which I think is really interesting. And that was happening at a time where I think expectations for rates, you know what I mean, were like kind of getting toppy, if you will. And and so that turned on a dime with a calendar turn, okay? And for some reason, though, when I think about what's going on right now, I don't know anybody who's particularly bullish on stocks. Like That's the weird thing about it, because I'm looking at my fact set screen, and I see the S&P up 7% of the year. I see a NASDAQ that's up 15.5% of the year, the NASDAQ 100 that's up nearly 20% of the year. So who's buying stocks here, Mike? Because I don't know anybody who looks at all the sorts of inputs that we look at and are particularly bullish about the economy first and foremost, but also what it means for equities and this ensuing that it just hasn't really happened or started this kind of profit recession that you've been calling for. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, look, there's a couple things going on. First of all, the rally in the fall that we called for was one of the most hated rallies I've ever seen, mainly because it was led by financials, industrials, and energy stocks, and the tech stocks were on their backs. In fact, we made the lows at the end of the year, uh, retested those lows and made a low, low price. So the rally in January made perfect sense. That was just a January fact, uh, the biggest losers from the year before had their move. But then it kind of took on another life. So why did it keep going? I mean, I understand the January effect, but why did it keep going? Two reasons. A, rates kept coming down, and the market was interpreting that as, oh, that's, that's, not, that's not bad. That's actually good. It means the Fed's going to be pausing. If they're cutting rates, it's probably not for good reasons. But the market wants to believe that. The other reason, which is more fundamental, and this is a legitimate reason why some people are bullish, which is... If you think about last year, tech was in a recession. It's still in kind of a recession. And so what did these companies did? They they cut costs. They got ahead of it. They call it now the year of efficiency. That was one of our themes last year. And they've, they've recognized that the market is going to pay them for cutting costs. Presumption is by the, the tech community and growth investors in general, is like, hey, tech already went through it. They're now ahead of the curve. And there's a new cycle for tech. Even if the broader market's still in trouble and we're going to have an economic recession, tech already had its recession. That's a very dangerous assumption, and here's why. Tech went through its own micro-recession, which was cost-based. If we have an economic recession, then they're going to fill in the top line. So I think that's the trap here. But there's a reason why, Dan. It's not all just like pie-in-the-sky nonsense. There is a cohort that believes that tech already went through the worst of it. They're ahead of it now. Great companies. You know, that narrative is easy to make. Rates are lower. Why not? Why not go there? So let me play devil's advocate for a second. Not, And I understand that bull case, and it's playing out in a lot of these names. For example... Apple is within, you know, an earshot of its all-time high. Microsoft, which last quarter was not particularly strong, has had a significant rally. And there are dozens of other names as well. But I would submit that 
people are looking this, the worst is over. The worst can last for a period of time. And I would say rates could go back to zero, but credit conditions will continue to tighten. So technology, which is so beholden to and contingent upon capital, it's also a very cyclical business, regardless of what people think. All those things are lining up against them right now, on top of which you have a consumer and an economy that's slowing at a markedly quick fashion right now. So the backdrop, although these stocks have rallied, actually might be worse now than it was at their trough. The growth risk is higher now than it was last year. Last year was margin pressure and, of course, the derating from higher interest rates. But now we have to deal with the top-line disappointment. So let's just backtrack. I mean, like, I don't know how you could be more constructive after what happened with the banking stress that we were still experiencing, by the way. The capital availability is is clearly going to decline. And the market here has been pretty smart about that, right? So small cap indices and stocks have traded terribly. Bank stocks have traded terribly. The internals of the market have been somewhat defensive, more defensive here lately. So here's a question for people who are constructive on on tech, which is, how much of their spending do you think is from small, medium businesses? A lot. I mean, a lot. So I think that's going to catch people off guard. And I would say in the last week, I'm encouraged by the fact that it looks to me like the I mean, the leadership group in this move has been semiconductors, which is actually even crazier because they're the most economically sensitive within technology. And if you think we're going into a further economic slowdown, you know that group looks pretty vulnerable. But the fact that they're starting to trade a little weaker here and we're seeing more defensive leadership, like true defense, like staples and utilities and healthcare, that tells me that that moving into the tech you know, dream has actually already ended. As we think about Q1 earnings and Q2 guidance, I mean, there's one number that's embedded in another company, in a, in a company's number that I think is probably one of the most important speaking to, you know, big tech's reliance on small, medium-sized businesses, and that's AWS, right, at Amazon. And when you think about who they serve across all different sorts of industries, like that deceleration that they saw in Q4, right? And they're expected, I think, high teens growth. This has been cut in half now over the last couple of years. You saw that huge pull forward during the pandemic. That's the one I think is really important to keep an eye on. And then the other one, let's talk about semis. We'll talk about the SMH, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor industry. It's up 25% of the year. Now we know the second largest holding is NVIDIA, which is up 85% of the year. This is a 27, $28 billion revenue company and to guys made this point on numerous occasions since the report last month, they're just telling a great story about some of the buzziest stuff. And granted, we get it. Okay, they're growing 25, 30% a year on revenue basis, but it's trading at 66 times. That's earnings and it's trading 22 times sales. That's just not sustainable as a $660 billion market cap company that makes up a huge part of the semiconductor. Because a lot of the semis trade very cyclically right now, I think, if you're looking under the hood away from, let's say, Taiwan Semi and NVIDIA. What's kind of surprising, if you look at the breadth of the semiconductor index has been pretty good. So obviously you have some big cohorts that have driven the bulk of the performance, but the breadth of semis- Yeah, is actually, so AMD up 42%, yeah. Intel's up 25%. Yeah. You haven't seen Intel up 25% in a year in, uh, in probably yeah. a decade, right? So so it, that that's what was kind of perplexing to me. It kind of you know drives home uh, this, this sort of narrative, right? I mean, people need something to believe in. And AI is sexy. AI is real. It's real too, by the way. Yeah. But is that going to really offset the- core cycle of that business, whether it's industrial semiconductors or PCs or handsets or other things that are going to be affected by an economic recession if it arrives. So, I mean, to me, that one seems the one that really sticks out the most. 
and it's captured the imagination of investors, and it's an easy story to tell. There's going to be a big payback there if, if a recession comes. We're taping this on a Thursday. This today, Thursday, they decided, they being the government or whatever agency, they're restating job numbers. I guess the math changed. So as people are listening to this, the jobs number probably came out. Now, I would, I looked at today, and I said one of the reasons the market rallied earlier at least today, and I'm speaking, again, it's Thursday, there was an interpretation that the shittier job numbers were actually positive for the market because it means the Fed's job has already been done for them and they're going to come to our rescue. I looked at it and said, people have to be out of their minds to think that bad news of this magnitude is somehow good news. And I'm not suggesting I'm right. That's just how I look at it. Speak to that, Mike. Part of the reason we're kind of floating higher today, too, is there's no one in the office. I mean, this is, you know, this is the Thursday before Passover weekend, it's, uh, you know, uh, Easter Sunday. And I mean, so it's just thin. So it can get pushed around. I agree with your interpretation. First of all, one of my pet peeves, you know, you look at these historical cycles, I'm a macro strategist, and you look at the data and you say, oh, this is what the data was saying the last time we went into recession. But the problem is the data wasn't saying that because it all gets revised. This is my, my biggest issue with the government data, particularly jobs data and inflation data. It gets restated after the fact. And the adjustments that we've seen, not just in claims data today, but also in payroll data more recently, suggests that the jobs market isn't nearly as strong as what the headline numbers have been telling us. So yes, that means that the Fed's job maybe is closer to being over, but we still got to go through what that means in terms of layoffs, a proper labor cycle, which is not going to be good for revenues and earnings. And look, if we were trading at 14, 15 times, that'd be one thing. But we're trading 18 times a number that we think is 15 to 20% too high. So yeah, I think uh, these things have a way of sorting themselves out. I mean, I, it doesn't bother me, the price action. In fact, it may be an opportunity to lighten up even further. You know, when you think about just the complacency, we're having 19 VIX. You know, we've been talking about the move indexes, just measuring the volatility in the bond market. You know, we've seen, you know, the dollar round trip its entire move. And you'd say, well, that's good for U.S. multinationals. Rates coming in, you think that's good for U.S. multinationals. For the most part, you just mentioned the underperformance in the Russell 2000 and small caps. It doesn't feel great for them. I mean, you know, credit conditions are getting tighter and we'll definitely spend some time. We'd love to get your take on the banking crisis here and where you think it is. But the complacency is the thing that bothers me right now. There was a tweet from the macro alpha. I don't know. You're not on the Twitter. And uh, I got kicked off the Twitter last week, but I, I still I still have a. Uh, why don't you, why don't you describe up? that? I mean, <laughs> no, explain no, to Mike no, Wilson what no, exactly no, no, happened. No, no. So I have this little thing. I like to troll Elon Musk. And, and, and you know, the, you know we, we call him like he's the free speech Karen or the space Karen or whatever. You know, the whole thing, Karen thing. He didn't like it. So. I got booted. I, I kind of I impersonated him on April Fools. I made a little joke and I got kicked off. So that was that. But the macro alf, he's a great follow on the Twitter, and he tweeted this the other day. In late 2000, it looked like the worst of the tech bubble implosion was behind us. You remember the rally that we had late in the year, and tech was like leading it. It was a it was a rally like the ones that we've had um, this year. Okay, in late 2007, it looked like a soft landing was upon us. In early 2023, we're talking about no landing. You remember that one? That was just two months ago, right? Uh, it always looks like a soft landing just before a recession. So here's the thing, right? Last year, when the market was at its lows in October, um, people were convinced that we were going to have a recession and it got pushed out a quarter or two. Here we are, all the data that you're speaking to, and even this jobs data now, which is really, again, that's that weird situation. Like the Fed would love to see unemployment at 4% and, uh, and all that. But now they're really in a pickle here because the economy now might be like this self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because all the things that we just talked about, the platform companies have been cut 
cutting costs and they were getting rewarded for it. Their stocks are up. But there is real trouble in private tech land right now because the SVB thing was a shot across the bow. Those companies have been cutting. They've been cutting capex where they could. We're here that they're cutting advertising all over the place. You're seeing this. And so now all of a sudden they had this kind of near death experience, right? And so this is going to start working its way, in my opinion, into Main Street sort of businesses in a way. And so I guess my question for you is like the recession is going to happen, whether it happens in a quarter, two quarter, we're not going to know until afterwards. How does the stock market right now, when does it start to price it? Because almost every other risk asset we would look as a really important input is pricing it right now. It's not in the stock, even at the sector level, it's not pricing recession. And look, the S&P 500 is the highest quality index in the world. Okay. And so it doesn't give it up until it has to. Now, my experience is this is why the last part of the bear market is so dangerous because eventually when you get to the very end, and usually when I say bear market, one that's punctuated by an economic or earnings recession or both. And what happens is at the very end, the equity market figures it out and it prices it all at once. So everybody keeps saying, hey, Mike, will it be like first quarter earnings season or second? No, it'll be when the market panics and says, holy smokes, actually the estimates are going to be a lot lower. And it usually coincides with an event that's so bad that people can no longer ignore it. So for the bond market, it was the banking crisis or banking stress. The bond market said, okay, that's it. Forget the Fed. We're, we're pricing in cuts. The equity market, for whatever reason, hasn't gone there yet at the index level. At the stock level, it has, right? The banks have been smoked. Small caps have been smoked. Anything with leverage has been smoked. But the overall index hasn't given it up yet. And I think that day is, could be imminent. We could come in next week and we have the next stage of whatever this you know, cycle looks like. There'll be something that happens. It'll price it all at once. Equity risk premium will go up to where we think there's value. And then you can say, okay, coast is clear. You can step in. So let's talk about this for one sec here because Guy and I had this conversation earlier. Um, you know, the banks, like you said, they just got smoked and they have been down a whole heck of a lot. And so, the, you know, next week, it's not like Jamie Dimon's going to come out and say anything all too different than was just in his annual letter. You know, if anything, Guy and I were like, if anyone's going to step on there, you know what? It's going to be probably Brian Moynihan over at Bank of America, but we got to wait a week or so for that one. So to me, I think the banks probably set up as a really hard press right now into earnings because they're down so much, right? And, and especially the region. And then if you look at what's going on with the life insurers or whatever, to me, that shot across the bow as it relates to a profit recession is likely to have to come in the back half of the month from one of the massive tech companies, right? And so, like, that, does yeah. that make sense or yeah. no? Yeah. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because I think, so don't forget, you know, I think we were talking earlier, like who the heck's buying this thing? And the markets have become so mechanical. You have passive flows from CTAs, from trend following, from, you know, vol targeting, all these different things that basically just trade off of numbers. So the bank Banking sector, financials sector, is about 16% of S&P earnings. So $35 of this year's earnings will come from financials. Now, I don't know what's going to happen during this earnings season, but my guess you could see maybe 10 bucks come out for the out year. That's big enough move for the overall S&P where maybe these algos say, Whoof, then they start actually selling S&P. It could be something like that, something that's not so obvious and then you get the rhetoric and be like, why is the market going down? I don't understand. Why is the market going down? Do you think there'll be well, questions plenty of reasons. on these bank calls about buybacks and dividends? Like, do you think that it's something that we're going to start talking about, like beefed up reserves and what might come next? Because, again, every time we have this sort of a crisis, you know, we, we you know, all these companies waited, you know, way too long in 2008 to do that. And I'm not suggesting we're anywhere near that. But then when COVID came, they knew that they, they had the playbook and they kind of had to do it. Do you think that's going to be working into the markets in the next month or so? And if it does, that could be the thing that sends these bank stocks to new 52-week or multi-year lows. Well, it's also a form of liquidity, right? So, you know, 
just because XYZ company is buying their own stock, that doesn't mean it's not helping the entire market. You're taking supply out, right? So, so yeah, I think the buybacks from the sector writ large will have to come down. It'll be stock by stock, but that's another liquidity problem. And that, to me, I think is your biggest risk in April, which is you have tax returns, people writing their checks, so that's a drain on liquidity. The TGA Treasury account can no longer raise debt because of the debt ceiling. They've already drawn it down to about as skinny a level as they can, so that's no longer a source of funds. There's been a lot of surprises over the last month about what's been going on in the banking industry. The one that surprised me the most, which I didn't know, is 60% of all deposits are uninsured, meaning they're above 250000 So that money is continuing to move not because they're worried about not being unsure, but because they're getting a better rate. So that's continuing. Whether money leaves your bank and goes to another bank or leaves your bank to go to money markets, it's the same thing in terms of your liquidity as a bank. And I think all of those things mean that, that liquidity is getting worse. It could be that simple, Dan. Like it, there isn't an event, you know, prices just start going down. People start looking around going, like, why are things down? And then all of a sudden levels get taken out and it begets more selling. That's usually the way it works. Last time you were on, we discussed bond market volatility. That's seemingly becoming an everyday occurrence on business news networks. Now more and more people talking about the move index, the move index over the VIX in terms of a ratio. You're hearing it more and more often. Two-year yields, which peaked out, I think, at 5.1%, have traded down 130 basis points in the course of maybe two and a half or three weeks on the back of a lot of things we're discussing. Unhealthy. The mechanisms to me, I mean, the U.S. bond market should be sacrosanct. It's trading a biotech stock. At a certain point, and I think it came home to roost with Silicon Valley Bank. There was nothing nefarious going on there. They just had duration risks that they were probably unaware of or just completely lackadaisical in terms of their thinking that nothing could happen. But that's all predicated on Fed stuff. So speak to me about the bond market and when this all manifests itself, if ever, in the equity market. Well, I mean, look, the bond market leads the equity market because that is your channel for capital availability. Okay, so there's no doubt that, you know, it's more expensive to borrow because of the spread widening and the lack of liquidity, even though rates are lower. Like if you went out and try and raise money today, it's going to cost you more. So that cost of capital, like you measure it through volatility, liquidity, what's the actual supply of money out there to, to go tap into that eventually does work its way into the equity market valuations through this liquidity channel. So like, it's not a direct impact yet. Like, We're not taking down earnings estimates because cost of capital is going up. There's a wall of maturity coming, but it's going to be, going to be gradual. So, I mean, it's just step one. I mean, at the end of the day, when the bond market acts like this, pay attention. I mean, you have to pay attention. And the divergences that we're seeing between the bond market and the equity market right now, yeah, it's pretty unprecedented. All right, so you mentioned the debt ceiling. Uh, for all the things that we just talked about, fixed income and, and the bond market in general, I mean, can you imagine how quickly the gap between the volatility in the bond market and the equity market will just get compressed if we do have a serious threat to tripping that limit? Look, it's it's not here yet. So, like, as you know, people can't focus on anything until it's, like, right in front of their face. Like, right now, it's about the bank stuff. That's being, Now it's going to be about earnings. Then it'll be about the debt ceiling probably starting in June. I guess I'm, I'm not optimistic that they're going to be able to resolve it until we get to the pressure point. So I would say stay tuned. Okay, so in other words, let's say we have a sell-off in the next six weeks or so, which I expect, around lack of liquidity and earnings being kind of punky again. We may have a little relief. I don't think we can get really relaxed until we get through this summer. And part of that reason is because of the, the debt ceiling debate, which has to go down. And it's not going to be pretty. It's, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, you can see the rhetoric around all the things that have been going on. I mean, I think there is a small vocal contingent 
I, I don't want to say that want this to see through the end, but I think are somehow pushing it towards that to further their agenda. That's just me. That's not being political. That's just trying to pay attention. Let's talk about the market just in terms of numbers. This is Morgan Stanley, your numbers effectively. The bull case in earnings for this year, which is amazingly almost halfway over. 251, you put a 16.7 multiple on that, and you get a price target of 4,200, which is 2% from where we're currently trading. That's the bull case. The base case, $241 worth of earnings with a 16.1 multiple, 3,900, which is maybe 5% from where we're trading. The bear case is $230 with a 15.3 multiple that gets you 3,500. And I would submit, and I'm you do this for a living, I don't. That bear case of 230, that actually could be significantly worse given what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, those are 2024 estimates. Oh, okay? I'm, so I apologize. Yeah, so, but that's important because that's what the market will trade on at the end of this year. Those are year-end price targets, all right? So as you rightly point out, the bull case is basically within spitting distance from where we're trading today, and that's you know nine months from now. So like, what's my? there's not a lot of upside here, even if I assume all the— everything's going to go swimmingly, which is we're leaning more towards the bear case, quite frankly. What we've tried to lay out for people is what is the path going to be this year to those price targets, okay? And I stand by those price targets, by the way. Like, I don't think we'll trade below 3500 at the end of this year. I mean, hopefully not. We're looking forward at that point. But between here and there, we can easily trade below 3500 because there's going to be a lot of uncertainty around what does this economic cycle look like? I mean, I, I personally think that there's a more than 50% chance of recession. There's a 100% chance of an earnings recession because we're already in it. And we think that earnings recession is going to be way more severe. So the 240, by the way, is off of a 195 number. The idea that the market's going to look through the 195 to the 240, which is what some people are kind of saying, I think that's pretty naive. Like If we get the kind of earnings revisions that I think are coming, the market's not going to look through that and say, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just price it off of next year's numbers. When you go into that type of a decline, you don't really know if you're going to get out of it. And that's what the market will be unsure about. So is that predicated, that belief, I'll use the term misguided belief, but belief that we can we can go from 195 to 240, is it based on the fact that there are participants that believe the Fed is going to lower rates again and we're off to the races? I mean, I think that if that does happen, it's for really bad reasons. So that's, though, what the market is hoping for, I think, to a certain extent. Here's the problem with that logic, which is, okay, so I have had these numbers out for quite a while. And so people say, well, Mike, but you know, you have 240 for now. I'm just going to use that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, first of all, you're not going to get the 240 unless you get the 195. Right? You, you need reflexivity. You, in order to get the Fed to be able to cut rates or to do more fiscal or do some sort of scheme to restart something the economy. Something has to happen. Something bad has to happen first. Otherwise, you end up with an L. By the way, the summary of economic projections right now from the Fed basically assumes no growth this year, no growth next year. I mean, we're talking like less than 0.5% GDP growth two years in a row, and then like a very tepid recovery in 2025. Let me assure you, if, if, if you're rooting for that, you don't want to own stocks because the multiples will just compress and the earnings won't go anywhere. So that's actually the worst outcome. This is going to sound perverse. If we don't get a recession, it's a worse outcome I, for, I agree for, with that. for 12 months. But, well, now, you, now you're leading me down a path. You're right, which is why a recession, in my opinion, is a normal and important part of the business cycle. But when you try to extract them through the word I use all the time, Dan, alchemy, mm -hmm. you just make the inevitable that much worse. And that's at the foot 
started with Greenspan, went through Bernanke and Yellen and this guy. I mean, that's all what they perpetuate. But, but Mike, isn't it interesting, though, that the 10 years prior to the pandemic, okay, so this is like obviously going back to the financial crisis, a GDP averaged like 2.2%, right? In a, basically a zero interest rate environment. And so what we've become just accustomed to is just this, this kind of no volatility in the rate market, but pinned almost towards zero, a lot of accommodation, continued fiscal sort of stimulus. And I guess the one thing that I think all of us, you know, I've been in this business for 25 years. I hope I get smarter every year. I think it's amazing how little we paid attention to some like really important economic constructs back in the day when we were slinging lots of money around. But now we kind of get it. Like what you just laid out of the path for growth over the next couple of years is not supportive of equity valuations trading where they are right now at the 10-year averages, right? At 17 and a half or something like that. And so that's the thing that I would also say is like, I think, and Guy says this all the time, because they've tried to alchemy out some of these sorts of economic downturns, we might find ourselves where all the chickens come home to roost. They come home to roost in an inflationary manner. They come home to roost because they can't use the same play out of the old school playbook of take interest rates down, and we end up in a stagflationary environment. Is that kind of what you're describing here if we don't have that recession? No, I think that it's going to feel stagflationary this summer, okay, because I think the Fed is in a tough spot right now where they can't be preemptive to the economic slowdown. Like, to be clear, given the data that we've already seen, PMI is well below 50, jobless claims now are at, you know up quite a bit, 500,000, okay, from where the bottom, we're seeing jolts way down. The Fed would already be cutting. And by the way, we have a banking crisis. They would be cutting rates already, but they can't do that because we have this inflationary dynamic. So I think what's going to happen is this summer, we're going to get the slowdown where it becomes so obvious that everybody has to you know, admit that the earnings are too high and the Fed isn't going to be coming to the rescue right away. That's when we get the max pain on multiples potentially because it's a temporary stagflationary environment because we actually get a recession and inflation will come down. Our view, and we've been talking about this for years, is not a environment where inflation is high or low, but both. It's volatile. And if you think about inflation going to 10, back to 1, 2, back to 7, back to 2, I mean, try running a business. I mean, forget about trading a portfolio. Imagine running a business, a real business, where you're trying to manage your costs and it's moving around like that. I think the dirty little secret of the last 25 years is that the we've had a very low, volatile economic situation, very predictable economic variables, which is good for stocks, but it's also good for running a business and being able to do that. So I think what's going to happen is companies that are good operators, and there are plenty of them, will be rewarded. Right. Companies who are bad operators are, will be exposed. And that that speaks to you know more idiosyncratic opportunities as opposed to this sort of just buy 10 stocks and go to sleep. Well, bad operators and or lazy operators, because quite frankly, for the last 20 years, you could be complacent and get away with it in the environment that we were prior you yeah. know, well, been in of, for so yeah. long. Think, think about it this way, right? It's just, it's a, a skill set that hasn't been developed. Correct. Because it, ha I mean, some businesses have to because they're in competitive industries, but for the most part, they haven't had to do it. So they focused on growth at any cost as opposed to, no, 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 we need to focus on how to operate a business from revenue all the way down to the bottom line. That's just a different skill set. So we're going to see a lot of retooling. So it's not all bad. But it's going to be way more volatile and a lot a lot more hard to manage. David Tepper would come on a network years ago and say when the Fed was easing and rates were at zero and, you know, people were trying to throw the bear case out. It's like, look, 
the Fed's easing, if rates are zero, don't fight the Fed. If you're bearish, you're fighting the Fed. So when the Fed started tightening again, he came out and said, well, look, if you're now bullish, you're fighting the Fed. I'm setting you up for this question because I think some people believe either side of this equation. This was in your note. When the Fed effectively came in and backstopped Silicon Valley, the depositors, there were people out there that said, okay, QT is over. We're back to quantitative easing. We're going to get Fed balance sheet numbers at some point, probably today, today again being Thursday. So the balance sheet probably got down to about, I don't know, 8.2 trillion. It's probably close to nine again. Is this quantitative easing or is this just temporary? It's neither. Some of this is permanent because these banks are going to be at the window for a while. These deposits keep, or the, you know, deposits keep moving around. The second thing is we don't think it's QE at all. First of all, QE is when the Fed is buying securities in the open market and basically putting liquidity into the system. This is very different. They're lending money to these troubled institutions, okay, and then the institutions are paying them 5% for that right ultimately having to pay it back. So that's not money that's permanently going into the pool, if you will. The other thing that we wrote about this week, which is is probably good for the listeners to hear, because people say, you know, you think about QE this time, we got monster inflation, but why didn't we get inflation after the GFC? We didn't get any inflation, which is, by the way, why they were so bold with it the second time. The reason why is because the first go round, they were just filling holes Mm -hmm. on banks' balance sheets and consumers' balance sheets, by the way. And so the money was, it was dead money. The M1 growth exploded. It was actually more. M1 growth was actually faster in 0809 than it was in 2020 and 2021. But the, the velocity of money collapsed. This time, the velocity of money was actually stable and went up because we sent checks out to people. So think about it that way. So M2 actually went to 21, 25% year-over-year growth. That's why you have inflation. So now they're, they're doing this quasi-QE, but it's not QE. We know that because M2 growth is still going down. We see that Fed balance sheet data, and we know that the lead indicator for M2 actually is further decelerating, which means what? It means the velocity of money is going down, which makes perfect sense. These reserves that are being added to the banking system are dead reserves. They're not going anywhere. Anybody who's at the window taking down reserves in the Fed is not lending them out. In fact, the whole banking system is probably calling loans in. So that's very deflationary in the short term. All right, let's talk about this banking crisis. We kind of alluded to it. And, you know, again, I think when the market's green over the last kind of week, two weeks or so, people are like, okay, crisis averted in the rearview mirror. But I look at this KBW, right, the KRE, the, the regional banking index, it's down 35% from its January highs. It literally is just a few percent off of its lows, right? And if you're looking at some of the names that were kind of next to kind of be backstop, they can't get out of their own way, right? And then if you look at the BKX and that, is obviously a lot of the the larger names. You know, we often look at the XLF, but Berkshire in there at 12% or something is not particularly useful. But, you know, the BKX is down 30% in two months or so. It feels to me that it's just kind of hanging out at these lower levels waiting for another shoe to drop from what you are looking at from your perch? Do you see another shoe to drop? Is there some other kind of event in a larger banking institution that really is the the shot across the bow for like investors as a whole thinking about, okay, um, we have to rethink valuations here? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's some, you know, massive bank situation that's going to blow up in our face, but I would say the shadow banking system could be at risk. That was the other unregulated part of the banking system. The large banks are very regulated and that, that's not where the problem is going to be. It's in the regional system which was unregulated for the most part, and then the shadow banks. But I think, the, once again, the biggest issue for the stock market is not so much that you know there's a bank blowing up, it's that the banks are not operating as fluidly as they were. And without that, you don't get money supply. Without money supply, you don't, the economy stops. 
I mean, Jamie Dimon said this this week in his annual letter. I mean, like there are going to be repercussions for this, right? And so for him to come out and say that preemptively, you talk about like the regulation that's going to happen here. I mean, just the cost of money is going to be higher. The access to it is going to be harder. There was a reason why all of these private companies were flocking to banks like Silicon Valley and Signature and some of these other things because they could get the capital they needed, the terms that they wanted, and they just had to have all their eggs in one basket. And let me tell you something. I've talked to dozens of VCs. I've talked to dozens of private market operators, uh, as you probably have over the last month, month and a half. They'd have to be absolute morons to make these sorts of mistakes again. They're going to start banking with JP or they're going to start banking. And a lot of them do for the most part, but not for the things that were really important for them. The sorts of things that were like move fast, break things, ask for you know forgiveness later, that's gone. You know what I mean? So I'm just curious, what are the repercussions that Jamie Dimon is talking about? Because it, it's probably not good for the valuations of the banking sector in general. But that doesn't mean they have to collapse either, right? Like they've kind of priced... I mean, I don't know if they priced everything, but they've priced a lot more than, say, the broader market, which is going to feel the after effects of what's going on in the banking system. So regulatory change, for sure. They're going to have to go down and regulate you know, a good chunk of the regional banking system. There's obviously going to be discussion about regulating the, the private credit sector, the shadow banking system. Like, how, What do you do about that? That's even, you could argue, you know, maybe potentially riskier. Maybe they're better operators, but still there's a lot of risk being taken there. That's just, like you said, that's going to constrain the access to capital. And we got to be careful that we don't overregulate some of this because you'll have a dead economy. So I think, you know, th- this is going to take years. I think that's the right well, time frame. Can we just talk about the shadow? So, so we're talking about like the Blackstones. If you look at some of these life insurers, I mean, these things look like a bomb went off. And what the hell's going on there? You said that, you know, S&P earnings, 16%, you know, are, are financials, banks, largely or whatever. There's a large part of the equity complex that look like death right now. You know what I mean? So if you say they're down 30% on average across the board, what is going to be the thing? that causes them to recover at some point this year or to make lower lows because they really feel like they want to make lower lows. I mean, obviously, some stocks are going to make lower lows in the financial sector, no doubt about it. But, I mean, to me, you're going to get consolidation. You know, I mean, like we have how many 4,000 regional banks? I mean, that's that's not going to survive. You know, that's one change. And ultimately, you're going to have to put the capital allocators in terms of lending in tighter hands. And then, you know, the Fed will take control of that over time. But so it's, it's a big adjustment. And this is why... I think you got to be extra careful now. Like, we didn't see this coming. I didn't see exactly. I knew something was going to happen when the Fed raises 500 basis points. And you look back and say, oh, that makes sense. Okay. And But now, like, I'm not as confident as I was about the rebound. Let's say I'm right. We have a recession, 185, 190, whatever the number is in earnings. And then I would say, okay, well, they can gin it up again. But if the banking system is impaired, okay, that money creation machine is no longer working as well as it was, then you got to wonder, can they really kind of get it going again? They'll prime a pump and a pump that no longer works. Or it doesn't work as well. doesn't work as well. I mean, there's a probability, but that probability is probably a one in four, one in five type of probability. Right. Well, I mean, but, that, but that's the whole point is that like, there's so many risks that are, that are there that aren't being priced. The equity risk premium at 200 basis points, you're just not getting paid to take equity-like risk, particularly when I can get 5% in a T-bill. You know who got paid? First Citizens Bank, who bought the assets from Silicon Valley Bank. And so when you talk about consolidation, I mean, that stock was trading in mid 
March at like $505 right now, it's trading $5 below $1,000. Okay. Like, so when you think about that, and there were none of the big money centers that swooped in, you remember that weekend, right? The weekend of March 15th or whatever, everyone was expecting maybe it was Jamie Dimon again. 15 years to the weekend when he got what looked to be a pretty sweetheart deal for Bear, and they're all sitting on their hands. We didn't hear Buffett's name anywhere. We didn't hear anything. So to me, that's the one reason I almost feel like the regulators are like, all right, Jamie, we're gonna we're gonna tap you on the shoulder maybe in two, three months or something like that after there's more to go here. We know how this is likely to play out. We can stem the tide right now. I, I don't know. Am I being overly uh, pessimistic here? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little Oliver Stone, but like, you know, we, it, was, bit, it makes a, a, good, a little good movie. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. Okay, nobody yeah. knows. The, the point is- well, you who played Oliver Stone in, in the in the Money Never Sleeps? One of my favorite actors. I think he's probably literally probably one of the most underrated actors of the last twenty years. You know, what I'm going to go with here. Go, Josh Brolin. Uh, remember good. he played that character right. like that was him. He was great in he's, that. He's he was probably the like, only the only redeeming thing in that movie other than the great. He was married to Diane Robert Shaw is the greatest. No, no Melissa actor Lee. Yeah, well, Melissa Lee was in that movie. Josh yeah. Robert Shaw. Josh yes. was the best. And, and the D, sting and, and the, the D. Oh, I mean, we could go Taking on. A one, <laughs> we, we, two, three. We've gone, we've gone through some some Robert Shaw yeah, uh, like wormholes on this on this program before. No, I, you think that sounds a little sensationalist? Well, we don't know. The, the point is, what we know is that this is not over. Every cycle ends in a certain way. Okay, I mean, I think this is the worst way that the Fed could imagine. Like they would rather see you know kind of a slowdown, but not a potential systemic problem with the banking system right in their backyard. I think that's a little bit close to home. So it prevents them from doing other things. It, it, they're going to have to you know, step in. I think that's what the market is excited about. They're saying, oh, this is so bad that the Fed now can't go any further. And I think you know, Jay Powell has been pretty adamant, though. And I think other governors have been up there trying to up the ante. They're not going to back off if things are going like this, that's for sure. They got a job to finish. And I think this is going to take some time. You know, there's going to be more consolidation to your point, and there's going to be winners as much as there are losers. And I think that's what I was trying to get to earlier. I don't think the whole banking system is going down. I think there's just going to be more consolidation, and somebody's going to take that share. With CME Group's micro sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt iConnections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io.
We ask listeners for questions. We'll get to them in a minute. But Morgan Stanley has some sectors you wanted to talk about. You're overweight in healthcare, which has done extraordinarily well over the last couple of weeks, if you look. Staples and utilities. Con Edison, just to name a name, is within earshot of its all-time high. So the utilities have traded well, obviously with rates coming down. On the flip side of that card, underweight, discretionary, which makes a lot of sense. But this one's interesting. Tech hardware, underweight. Speak to that real quick. Well, really, it's the cyclical parts of tech. So it includes semiconductors and, and hardware because they're more cyclical. But, you know, I, I go back and forth on this. Software is also cyclical and economically sensitive. But it got re-rated pretty good last year. It's more of a neutral. We're not bullish. Uh, we think it's an inline type of a performer. There's all these neutrals in the middle. I would say the ones we'd skew more bearish on would be industrials because revisions haven't even begun there yet. There's a lot of market cap there still that, that could be hit. And, you know, energy is a real wild card. Like, I think it's fascinating. We got this production cut from OPEC over the weekend. We got, like, a one-day pop on the energy stocks, and then there's, like, no follow-through. And, you know, I'm this is where I'm a cynical guy or a skeptical guy where I'm like, well, why do you think they're cutting production? Because they're probably seeing demand has fallen off already. Every recession usually has an energy spike right at the end because there's some action, and then eventually that's the thing that kicks over the can. If gas prices went to 4 bucks a gallon again nationally – you know, going into the the spring, maybe that's the final straw for the consumer. I don't know. But uh, energy to me is not something I really want to be involved in right so, here. So listen, every time you come on, we're going to ask you this question because we get nervous that on Monday your note's going to drop and you're going to come, come out with some tactical that's call. Moses that's Danny Moses. I know. That was Danny Moses. All right. So He's let, traumatized, Let's right? just say hypothetically because <laughs> we have an S&P at 4,100. And let's say a lot of stuff happens all at once. It kind of crescendos on the way out of earnings season. And let's say we're, you know, back at the 200-day moving average in the S&P, which is what, 3940. And let's say we yeah. break through that because there's another banking issue or something something like that. And then we're at 3,800. Okay. And then all of a sudden 3,491, which was that October low, which was 91 points above the pre-pandemic high from February, 2020. Does Mike Wilson say, I think we've discounted a lot of the stuff that I've been laying out for a long time, because finally it's the price that's dictating the risk reward on the other side from a positive standpoint. That's why we did it in October. Okay. So if we got back to those levels again, now remember earnings are a little bit lower too, and we have some other issues going on, I would say, and we've told clients the same thing, we think a retest of the lows is pretty much, you know, in the cards. And since nobody's good enough to call it to the day, I mean, we can pretend we are, and sometimes we get it right, but it's, it's kind of risky. That's where you start putting capital to work, but you do it selectively. I doubt we're going to come out and be like March of 2020 at the low. We made the just buy everything call because equity risk premium was so high. At 3,500, the equity risk premium won't be anywhere near those levels. It'll be more rifle shotted is my guess. So we asked for viewer or listener questions. This is a audio medium, so it would it be listener questions. Actually, you know what? Follow our, our, our YouTube channel. This is going to be on the YouTube, Risk Social Media. Subscribe to our YouTube channel yeah. and smash the shit out of the like button. Yeah, whilst, like it, subscribe to it. Whilst you're there. So, Mike, Ryan Fink asks, is there a scenario where earnings don't contract? What's the best argument for earnings to increase from here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we could be wrong on the earnings forecast. I mean, we think about it all the time. We, we don't think so, but what, why would we be wrong on that? The case could be made, and I think a lot of people are making this case, that a large part of the S&P 500, um, the higher quality companies, have already cut costs, and therefore, they're ahead of it. So they've stopped the bleeding on the margins. They're not looking for a big acceleration, 
But if we can just bottom out here, that that's good enough at like 220, 215. And if we hold those levels on earnings forecast, that would be as bullish as I could get on earnings. Is that enough to take the S&P materially higher from here? I don't think so. What's the case to make earnings go higher from here over the next six months? I think it's really hard to come up with a scenario unless there's some exogenous positive shock on the top line, like some sort of a stimulus package or some not, but not happening, right? Like think, I think about stimulus. I, well, in front you can't say of not happening. Five to ten percent. Five to ten percent chance yeah. that you get earnings growth. But to his question, I mean, I could be wrong on the downside. So if we just go flat, then that means we trade between thirty-eight hundred and forty-two hundred probably for the rest of the year. Here's one from Richard Cox. I like this one. I always try to be a contrarian investor, as do I. There, Richard. Right now, it's hard for me to tell what's investing into the hype versus what's contrarian. High growth tech stocks have been smothered and are down big from pre. 2022 highs, though, have rallied into 2023. Is this still a contrarian play? And you've also heard this, that a lot of strategists have suggested the things that led in the prior bull market are not going to lead you out of a bear market. Is this kind of tie into that a little bit? Yeah, I don't think buying the high multiple stuff is a contrarian idea. I don't think there's a lot of sponsorship for it either because, I mean, the biggest change in the last two years is that rates cost capital is higher. So that game has kind of changed, I think, permanently, and especially the profitless stuff, right? Now, there are certain names, perhaps, that maybe people can dream about, but here's a dirty little secret, okay? <laughs> people haven't learned anything, okay? So the, the reality is last year, you would have thought after the beatings that went down on the high multiple stuff, people would have given up on that, and they said, I learned my lesson, I'm not going to do it anymore. But there's more desire to want to own that stuff than there is to own beaten up value stocks and things that may be boring, okay? So as I like to say, Unfortunately, the beatings will probably continue until morale improves. And I, I think love that. You do love that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's how you live your life, actually. Well, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. more directed at me. Like. All right, so wait. And here's a question that's directed at you, Guy Adami. This is for Guy. This is from Roger Lee. Would you rather have Don Mattingly or Daryl Strawberry on your all-time fantasy baseball team? Well, that's a great – I appreciate that question. Now, Straw did play for the Yankees for a period of time. So if he had just had played for the Mets – something that was disqualifying. Yeah, well, yeah. the fact that he played yeah. for the Mets. Yeah. But I'll try to be honest here in my assessment – for the six years from 1984 to 1989, Don Mattingly was the best baseball player in the game. Full stop. Look at the numbers. It was historic what he was doing. Del Strawberry had some great years, but I don't think he was ever the best player in the game. So to answer your question, it's Don Mattingly. Well, I mean, best years for, for Strawberry were with the Mets. You know, So so that's one thing. As a, I mean, the sad thing about Daryl Strawberry, I think we never got to see the best of him. Because he had, you know, other issues. It's funny. There were there were some years though when you looked in that Yankee dugout and it was Doc, it was Daryl, it yeah. was Dave Cohen. Well, George Steinbrenner loved loved getting Met reclamation projects. He reveled in that because it was sticking it to the Mets. The Mets have not been nearly as successful getting ex Yankees, and that just speaks to the franchise. Yeah, fair enough. All right, should we do this? We, Mike, uh, if you uh, don't uh, realize uh, it, I'll tell you. I the Mets could go 0 and 162, which won't happen this year because they've already won three games as we sit here. And I would still find something to kvetch about, Dan. That's a matter of fact. All right, Mike Wilson, we really appreciate you coming back on the tape here. You always have a mic, and we hope to see you here every quarter. So we appreciate your fine work that you do for your clients at Morgan Stanley and for our listeners. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.